Philadelphia. Welcome to Cronulla Bay, a short stories and poetry for November 3rd, 2023. Hello, my name's Terrence O'Donnell, and I'm back to your digital village with more stories and poems. I need to do a little advertising first. This once-a-week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com. It's also available on these mobile apps and websites, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Deezer, and Cronabayhot.substack.com. My shores are free to subscribe to with these platforms, but I do have a donations tab on the RSS.com webpage where I post the episodes and my website at Cronabayhot.com, much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. So disclosures for listeners outside of Medium.com. In order to read the stories and poems of Medium.com, you will need to sign up for a subscription in Medium. Even though I provide links to the stories and poems in the newsletters, the difficulty will be reading the stories themselves, as they're paywall on Medium by the authors, and I have no control over that. If you want to listen to the podcast outside of Medium, you can also find the podcast with the newsletter on my Substack page at Cronabeha, and in the blog section of my website at Cronabeha.com. There is a separate page on my website where you can listen to the podcast for free. Um, I have links to Spotify and RSS.com in there. Um, Just go look up www.kranabeha and you can find it easily enough. A little about me. I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Shanake, an Irish storyteller. I want you to imagine we're sitting together under the village oak tree, Kranabeha, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life. While gathered here, I will read to you fictional stories and poetry from writers I found from around the world at Medium.com with their permissions. So I've got three stories and a poem for you this week. One is a science fiction story, a mythical story, a poem about distant stars, and an alien encounter with some sound effects thrown in from added ambience. So my first story is called The Reluctant Snowman by David Pahor, and he published this in Illumination on Medium. At times, it's enough to stand in the garden. If it were not for the gray outline of the cottage and its hint of shadows from the smudge of saffron candlelight, he would have easily imagined he was drifting through an ashen nebula of fluffy white stars in a soundless universe. He had stood for hours in the small orchard, below branches straining under snowy blankets as the night deepened and all the mourners arrived by cart and foot to enter the domicile of Wake. To the casual observer, he was nothing more than a largest snowman the neighbor's children must have laboriously fashioned during the day, practically indistinguishable from the winter's fury. The women inside had concluded the lament for the departed lady of the house some time ago, and now the world reverted to the hushed postcard of the snowstorm countryside on an early industrial planet, tucked from view in grand events in one of the lesser galactic arms. To his surprise, he had understood all the archaic verses of the Keening, even if he had not uttered the language of his births in childhood. In the woolly silence, the crystals continued to melt on his exposed face, dripping from his eyebrows and chin as saltless offerings to a memory of a pretty woman with auburn hair and a mischievous smile holding his hand. A lively jig played by a pair of accordions interrupted his thoughts accompanied by the first strings of laughter, announcing the beginning of the traditional merrymaking, communal drinking, feasting by the open casket of the deceased. He shook his head, angry at himself for not taking the decision all evening. 
The shape appeared beside him as if from nowhere. His combat enhancements reflexively pushed him into bullet time, so it took the specter a brief eternity to finish speaking. So you came. He immediately recognized the man in a gamekeeper's heavy cape and fur hat. Although he was shocked by the ravages four decades had dealt to the visage and once burly frame of his mother's youngest brother, he switched back to standard clocking. Hello, Uncle. Well, will you be joining us inside nearer? The meat is fiery, the casserole eye-watering, and a sweet meat salivating. He found himself uncommonly lost for words and cursed himself for breaking the rules, for returning clandestinely to his home glow. Gods knew how long it had taken to obtain the classified information, so he just blurted out exactly what should never have been spoken with the wards. You're not going to ask me where I've been and why I look like a youth? Uncle grinned. Ah, I see. You too are fooled by my provincial use of the unpolished woodsman. His voice grew serious, almost harsh. But I still read, dear boy. I read as the wind rushes above the ragged peaks. I peruse all the books of nature and science in the county library and subscribe to the monthly of amazing tales. I watch the skies and hills, and whatever those pompous priests maintain, I damn well know you are not taken by garden variety fairies. Now was the young man's turn to smile. I can hardly argue with your logic. Is it as adventurous and magnificent as I try to imagine out there among the stars? Commander of Outreach Unit Tau decided to lie to his last living somatic relative without hesitation. It was the least he could do to repay the person who had taken care of his ailing mother for the previous ten years, bolstered by the gold wafers that appeared in the hound's kennel each summer solstice. More so, we work for a star-spanning society that keeps the flame of civilization alive across the galaxy and protects the genetic diversity of humankind, maintaining huge fleets of starships and habitats populated by people, creatures, and thinking machines who enjoy art and literature. Still, she hoped to the end you would visit her. She knew you were alive. It was not an accusation, but a mere statement. I, uh, I'm not allowed. There are rules. Yet here you are, chit-chatting with me. What happens now? You have to kill me. Don't be daft, Uncle. I have technology that can erase the last hour of your memory. Suddenly the snowman moved, hugging the grizzled man tightly, too tightly, showering ice in a small cloud as his half-visible and camouflage coat shimmered gently. Thank you, Uncle. Thank you for all you did. He turned and walked away, deeper into the veil of paleness and towards his club ship in the dark woods. His uncle's distant voice followed him. But why do you not want to see her? The janissary whispered to himself and his tears, because I will not relinquish her face of youth. My next story is classified as supernatural, um, and it's from Susie Jacobson Cherry. One minute past midnight, are children born in the between time touched by the fae? The great-grandmother alternated pacing and sitting in her rocker, threatening to wear two rocker-shaped holes in the wooden floor. Her eyes were red from the crying, and she twisted the small clock clutched in her hands back and forth until her wrists hurt. She muttered in a sing-song voice that would have led any eavesdropper to think she was casting spells. Indeed, perhaps she was. Certainly, if she could, she would cast a spell so that the baby about to be born would wait just one more day. 
She was terrified that her new great-granddaughter would be born on the Irish holiday. Although St. Patrick was a Christian saint and not even Irish, truth be told, the holiday that celebrated him was the biggest celebration of the Emerald Island in the United States. It wasn't Patricus the Druid Killer that she was afraid of. No, it was something more ancient. Wasn't it true that those who reveled in Patty's memory paid attention and tribute to the leprechauns? What about the Banshee? No, this child must be born after this day had passed. She was an old woman, and there was nobody she could talk to who would understand. She told her daughter and granddaughter to pray, but neither had seemed to take her seriously. Perhaps if they knew the truth of their bloodline, they would also be afraid. After what seemed like hours pacing and rocking, the great-grandmother padded into her kitchen and put on the kettle. Her family had hailed from Lincolnshire in the east of England, and though she had been born in the Dakotas in the mid-1880s, her family had still enjoyed a restorative cup of tea. Tonight, she really needed one. Tea brewed, the great-grandmother stirred in cream and sugar, then wrapped her shawl around her shoulders and turned her rocking chair to face the window. The clock on the mantel ticked loudly. Time was passing, but it was still light outside. Time was not passing quickly enough. She sat back in the rocker and sipped her tea as she waited for the light outside to shift in the evening. Alone in the quiet, she slipped into reminisce. She was 18 again, meeting the man she was to marry in the small prairie town where she had been born. He was a new arrival, having traveled from Minnesota in search of a farm of his own. His father owned the general store in town. She was helping out on a Saturday. She spent weekdays at the small grammar school where she taught. Surely it was Providence which brought him into the store on the only day she would be present. They were married the next year after he had purchased a small farm on the outskirts of town. A year later, she was expecting her first child. Her daughter would be the only child she bore, for once she knew the truth of her husband's heritage, she, want, she would not give him another child. He told her when the baby was about six months old. He had come in from the fields for dinner that night wearing a strangely sad smile and had a curious wild look about his eyes. He walked into the kitchen hat in hand. After hanging both the hat and his coat on the stand in the corner, he touched her shoulder as she placed the butter on the table next to the fresh bread which she had sliced moments before. Taken by surprise, she looked up at him with a strange feeling in the pit of her stomach. Sweetheart, he began. She heard a sort of desperation in his voice. Sweetheart, I... She could see his Adam's apple move up and down as he swallowed. I, well, I must go to the river, and soon. I have little time before, before... She looked at him curiously. Before what? Her voice trembled. She did not feel as if he simply wanted to catch trout. Sit down, dear, he said tremulously. I must tell you something. Something I should have told you before we married. Before we had the little one. What is it? Tell me. Then he had told her an incredible story. It was unbelievable until he provided proof. His family had immigrated from Scotland, where they had lived in the lowlands near a river. His father's family had been in a position of prominence from the 12th century until just two generations before his father's birth. They fell on hard times, losing their lands and the fortune that had once been theirs. In order to support his family, his great-grandfather had become a fisherman who sold fresh fish at markets in small communities in Scotland and northern England. He traveled between communities fishing the waters and carrying his catch into the nearest town to sell. The fisherman had a son and a handful of daughters. As the son grew older, he began to travel with his father, 
learning the trade, and coming to understand the elements of business. It was on one of these trips that her husband's grandfather met the woman he would marry, and who would bear him the children who would carry the bloodline forward in time. The woman was no ordinary woman, however. After they had married, he discovered that she was a shapeshifter of a sort he had never heard of. There was no real name for what she was. The closest being to what she was that had a name was Selkie. Selkies are shapeshifters who are sometimes human and seals at other times. They lived in the rivers and lochs and along the ocean's edge, sometimes getting captured by humans seeking fortune. It was simple enough to catch a selkie when they were in the human form. Just find their seal pelt and hide it away where the selkie would not find it. It was a horrible torture to deny the selkie their alternate identity and to force them to stay exclusively on land. The fisherman's wife was like a selkie, but she was not of the seal family. Her non-human form was an otter. Some in her family thought they might be the offspring of the selkie told of in the Scottish tales, she who had been rescued from a cruel human man by the otter king. Like the real selkie woman who yearned to return to the waters of their birth, so the fisherman's wife yearned to play in the waters and lakes where she had grown up. Her heart fairly broke in two when her husband told her he wanted to leave Scotland and sail across the great ocean to a land of which she had never heard. She begged him to leave her, to return the gift of her otter pelt, which she had presented to him at their wedding, so she might put it on. If her husband was to leave her and cross the sea to his fortune, surely she would never step out of that pelt again. Theirs was a marriage of love. Her husband had lovingly placed a pelt in the oak and cedar chest he had built for his bride, and whenever she heard the call of the waters, he brought it out for her. He had been eager to please her, happy to make her happy. He had no desire to keep a captive wife. Now, though, things were different. He was promised a good living in America. His cousin had written with an offer he would be foolish to refuse. He had a wife to support, and now she was carrying her first child. He could not leave her behind, and he could not stay. He would not remove the pelt from the chest. Their sea voyage was fraught with mishaps. Many of the immigrants found themselves curled like colicky babies, crying at the nausea of both seasickness and homesickness. The choppy waters brought a freezing, frothy mist which settled on the deck of the ship and into the bones of the travelers. The otter wife spent the day sitting below deck, twisting the ties of her dress with fingers red and frozen, worrying the fabric into tangled knots and frayed edges. Her husband knew the once lovely material was a reflection of the way his beautiful wife felt inside. By the time their ship docked in New York, his wife's visage was wan and thin. She had eaten very little in the crossing only enough to keep herself and her son alive. The husband loved his wife deeply and regretted the distress his decision had caused, but his desire to raise his unborn son in America was powerful. child was born on a wagon bound for Minnesota territory where the infant's father was expected to begin working for his brother. Despite the hardships of the crossing, the boy was pink and healthy. He cried with robust lungs and drank of his mother's breast with an insatiable thirst. Small family arrived in the Minnesota city and began their new life together in a small home on a wooded property near a lake. It was this lake which saved the life of the otter woman, for she was now able to don her pelt and play in the waters whenever she felt the need. While her husband was away working at his brother's mill, she cared for their home and their son, taking him to the water and teaching him to swim before he learned to walk. When the boy was three, his mother took him to the lake for a morning swim as she did every morning once his father had gone for the day. She had packed them a small lunch of bread and cheese and fresh milk, which she set out on a blanket 
before taking the boy by the hand and leading him to the water. They frolicked for a while, splashing playfully. Beneath the surface, the mother watched her boy as he zipped and zoomed through the water grasses, touching fish and reaching for the paddling wet feet of the ducks and geese that made this lake their summer home. The sun shone above, glinting off the tiny waves and made rainbows in the spray the boy and his mother created in their play. Soon the mother thought her son would be ready to eat, so she rose out of the water and turned to call him to shore. He did not appear above the surface. His mother felt a moment of panic. Surely, swimming as well as he did, he had not lost his bearing in the short time between her watching him play with the trout and standing on the shore. She fought the sense of hopelessness and began to step back into the cold water. As she did, her son burst through the surface, his little toddler eyes open wide with wonder, and his little mouth full of wriggling rainbow trout. He lifted his hands to take the small fish from his mouth. That was when his mother knew that he had inherited her gift of shifting, for his hands were now small furry paws with claws, right for gripping a fish flapping wildly between the tiny teeth of a toddler. He ate that fish raw, then lay on his back and floated on the water, his eyes closed in pure joy. He didn't fully transform that day, but his mother knew it wouldn't be long before his tendency to shapeshift would press upon his heart and the desire to wear the pelt which had not yet developed would become an imperative when the ties were high and the song of the wind tore at his heart. That night she told her husband what happened. So began the line of American otters. Somewhere along the line, the family had taken on the name of otter as their own. The great-grandmother didn't know if it was before or after the family came to America, for it was not her family but her husband's. Perhaps it had always been so, a precognitive coincidence. All she knew for certain was that she feared for her soon-to-be-born great-granddaughter in spite of the fact that there had not been a shape-shifting child born in a generation. Her own daughter had birthed four children, none of whom showed signs of the shifting. The boys were all conventional young American men who had served their country with pride and married well. All had started in normal careers that would lead them directly into middle-class, split-level houses in nice neighborhoods. That girl, though, her granddaughter had been a problem from the time she turned 13. Obstinate and imaginative, that girl had run away from home whenever she was disciplined in the slightest. The great-grandmother sent the boys after her, and they would return with her sullen and angry. The judges deemed her incorrigible. Even so, she had not been a selkie. Perhaps it ended with her husband. Now she was married to a good country boy, a Danish Lutheran. The great-grandmother hoped he would be a good influence, even though he wasn't a Scots Presbyterian. Thank goodness she didn't marry that Irish Catholic boy she was engaged to before this boy. The great-grandmother stood up from her rocking chair and began to pace the floor. The son had been down for some time now, and there had been no phone call. The baby wasn't born yet. Hope was beginning to grow in her fearful heart. It was getting a bit chilly in the room. She turned up the thermostat and wrapped her shawl around her shoulders. Sitting back into her rocker, she let herself relax a bit. Closing her eyes, she drifted into sleep. A loud ringing jarred her peaceful slumber. Jumping from her chair, she moved to the telephone nook and picked up the receiver. Hello, she spoke into the heavy black barbell. Mother, the line crackled a bit. Mother, it's a girl. A girl, you say? What day is it? Has the Irish day passed? She almost regretted her words. Certainly they sounded silly, superstitious. Well, so be it. The Fay were nothing to laugh at. Yes, mother, a girl. The great-grandmother broke into her daughter's words. And the day, the date. You can relax, mother. The day has passed. The child was born at one minute past midnight. The great-grandmother's fear subsided with the news. 
She felt herself relax. That is good, then. Give my granddaughter my congratulations. Kiss the new baby for me. Her daughter promised to do so, and the two women wished one another well. Her daughter would be returning home soon. Placing the receiver back into its cradle, she chuckled to herself. After a second cup of herbal tea, the great-grandmother sat down again to await her daughter's return. She would turn in once she was not alone in the house. An hour or so later, the two women happily shuffled into their respective bedrooms, satisfied that the first child born into the next generation of their family was robust, healthy, and fully formed. Good night, daughter, the great-grandmother called through the slight opening in her bedroom doorway. Good night, mother, her daughter answered. About an hour into her sleep, the great-grandmother had a dream. A young girl with strawberry blonde hair sat alone on a rock at the edge of a forest. In her hand, she held a pad of paper and a writing instrument. Her hair blew softly in the wind, and the child sang a strange, unearthly song. As the great-grandmother looked on, the girl's visage turned to mist, then reemerged as a creature with a button nose, whiskers, and tiny feet-like hands, perfect for holding on to a fresh rainbow trout. The great-grandmother woke, pulling the covers up to her neck, eyes wide. One minute past midnight. Had it truly been that time when her great-granddaughter was born? Was it enough time past the witching hour of the midnight to avoid the curse of the pixies? What if the clock in the hospital was wrong? What if the time was too close to the passage between the worlds? What if the child is pixelated after all? What would happen then? The great-grandmother lay awake the rest of the night, terrified by the visions conjured by the second sight, a gift she had inherited from both her Scottish parents. It was a gift that rarely lied to her, though she sought to avoid it. What would it all mean? Should she talk to her daughter? To her daughter's daughter? Would it make any difference for her great-granddaughter? One minute past midnight. Next I have a poem, Beyond the Waves, A Promise, by Malachi. In a kingdom distant by the seas, for her I toiled through days and nights with ease, building a life brick by brick, tree by tree, so together in comfort we both could be. As youth we dreamed, hopes running free, I labored for that dream for her and me. But challenges arose, as they often do, yet with gritted sweat I always broke through. The world watched, sometimes with a sneer, but for her smile I conquered each fear. Every evening as the sun took its leave, I envisioned the life we'd weave. By the shores, with stars as our guide, for her, for us, I'd always provide. My last story is a, it's a story about a, a alien, it's about aliens, I guess, if you want to call it that. It's entitled The Encounter, A Writer Intent on Suicide Meets a Woman by Harry Hogg. The breeze smelled of salt as Abraham Toomey stood on the deserted deck, looking at the passing seas. In the distance, across the night water, he saw another cruise ship, lights illuminated and filled with happy, partying souls, precisely like the ones that permeated the vessel he was aboard. He, however, wasn't one of those carefree people. He toiled as a freelance writer for 30 years, penning short stories, articles, and unpublished novels. Approaching his mid-sixties, it seemed life was well past its best days. He couldn't make people happy, especially his harshest critic himself. Good evening, spoke a young woman, her hair kept neat under a silk scarf from the heavy breezes coming off the sea. Touching his cap, Abraham smiled, saying nothing and returning his gaze to the ocean's vastness. He wore his cap often, though it was nothing special, a flat cap, mainly to protect his bald scalp from the sun. Abraham wore it everywhere. It had become a habit, the first thing he put on after his shower and getting dressed in the mornings. He always went somewhere with it. 
Cruising for cruising's sake was not what Abraham had in mind. Leaning over the ship's rails, he thought nothing about the young woman with the cheery words disappearing around the sharp end of the deck. Looking down, it was evident that unless he jumped with the power of an Olympic athlete, his best effort would see him fall to a lower deck, and instead of dying, he'd have a body of broken bones. Abraham turned away, slapping the rail and sighing in frustration, knowing he had to look to another deck for a more accessible place to jump. Just then, the ship's bow was bathed in a bright light that vanished in a second or two. That was uncanny, he thought. He wasn't the only one to have witnessed the strange aura. People could be heard murmuring as they hurried onto the ship's deck. What's happening, kid? Abraham asked a young lad rushing past. Some really cool light in the sky, then it vanished. Abraham nodded, having no interest. But after watching the kid scamper away in excited anticipation, he returned to looking for another area of the ship from which to jump. With plenty of people distracted by the unexplainable light show, he might find a way to get close enough to the ship's edge. No doubt he'd have to go through some crew-only doors, but it's not like they would arrest him if they found him. He wasn't committing a crime, after all. Inside Abraham's chest, his heart was pounding and nerves pulsated under his skin. This would be his best chance. Wouldn't it be better to have a drink and talk? A voice asked from the shadows. Abraham turned, slightly unnerved, said nothing, and waited. Emerging from a dark stairwell came a young woman, maybe in her mid-thirties, and though he wasn't sure, she could be the same woman who had wished him a good evening, except the silk scarf was no longer on her head. You can always jump ship afterwards if that's to your wish, she said, and smiled. Then he knew from the smile that the same young lady passed him earlier. Abraham had read enough and written enough stories about angels gracing those minds in desperate turmoil. Still, no angel he had ever heard about, written about, or thought about had such a slender frame, accentuated by her simple black evening gown and a silver necklace and nestling in her plunging neckline. Her skin was pale, fresh, and soft, and her dark eyes matched the hair that blew across her shoulders in the sea-blown breeze. I'm sure I have no idea what you're suggesting, young lady, Abraham said, leaning back against the railing. Had he spoken out loud about everything, he wondered? The bar inside is reasonably clear, she said, looking back like he would follow. Everyone is excited about the strange lights at the bow of the ship. Abraham knew he couldn't leave from this particular spot anyway, so why not have a drink with her? They sat at a booth near the back of the small bar, one of several on the ship. Abraham sipped a Macallan while the young lady enjoyed a glass of Chardonnay and figured it was about time he introduced himself. I'm Abra Abraham Tooby, the woman finished for him. Then she admitted, I'm a writer too. Abraham raised his eyebrows, not completely surprised. Anything I'm likely to have heard about, Abraham asked. Is that important tonight, Abraham? Just interested, making conversation. A few articles, some stories, nothing brilliant. Abraham took a deep sip of his whiskey to take the edge off the evening. Why would you think I was going to jump ship, Abraham asked. You met me, what, ten minutes ago? The young woman leaned across the table, her scent wafting deliciously. You're depressed, Abraham, clinically, so I shouldn't wonder, she told him, resting her hand on his forearm. Abraham paused, looking at his drink. Who are you, some shrink? How would you know what's going on inside my head? You don't. Abraham, it hardly takes a shrink to know you were thinking about jumping off the ship. Did I say I was going to jump? He said, unsure if he had, in fact, said something. No, Abraham, you didn't tell me. But listen, make me a promise you'll not jump off the ship or attempt to harm yourself for the rest of this voyage. Can you do that? Abraham hesitated, staring at the woman who had taken center stage in what was to be his final act. Look, you're a considerate person. I know you're trying to help, but explain to me how this is any of your business. Okay, well, 
that is not the answer I was looking for, Abraham. Won't you say, I promise, and that's that? And there's another thing. You didn't tell me who you are. What's your name? I'm a person to tell you millions of people in this world have it far worse than you, worse than you can imagine. Cliché, I'm surprised, Abraham replied. As a writer, you'll know it's not an issue one can compare. A person can be unhappy and unfulfilled no matter what privilege or not is his or her life's situation. A person can also be giddily happy. It's the inner makeup of a person that makes them what they are and how they feel. Spoken like a true writer. Hardly. Just tell me who the hell you are and what the fuck you want with me. Abraham was embarrassed at cursing but kept himself from showing it. He wanted answers from the woman sitting across the table. Either we can know each other's names or I'm taken off. He stood up and exited the booth. I'm someone who wants to help you, she said. Abraham pauses, turns. Why? Does that really matter? The young woman came from the booth and standing up to Abraham and touched his face. Abraham, surprised, immediately backed away. I'm alone, Abraham, she said. Abraham, ready to run, moved back farther. It was unnerving, but some writer's intuition also told him that it was altogether fascinating. Young lady, I'm probably 30 years your senior. If you think I have money, I do not. I've been writing stories for 50 years and have not had a single one published, Abraham told her, irritated at her imposition. You're working on a book, aren't you? How do you know that, he asked. I just figured. Writers are always working on something, are they not? Abraham gritted his teeth. He hated talking about this, but somehow she drew it from him. Look, I've wasted 50 years writing two novels, years of work, only to realize that they will never be good enough to be published. Please, Abraham, sit down and finish your drink. What's this novel called and what's it about? I promise I won't tell anyone. Abraham let himself return to the booth. You can go home again is the working title, Abraham said. It was the first time he had spoken the title out loud. It's a novel set in the future, showing what humanity could be if we ever came together. Of course, forces are working against it. I hoped it would be entertaining as well as thought-provoking if I ever finish it, which I will not. Of course it won't be finished. You intend to throw yourself overboard, Abraham. Then Abraham uttered something as if his words were not under his control. Are you hungry? On this ship, food is available 24 hours a day. Famish, she said, standing and motioning with her right arm that she wanted to put her arm through his. Abraham didn't respond accordingly. Will you tell me about your story, she asked as they walked toward the Lido deck. If you promise to have an open mind, maybe they have pizza, Abraham said. I promise it's a really interesting story. Is it a love story, Abraham? At nearly 4 a.m., the Lido deck was deserted, save for the two of them talking. I know you believe in other worlds, Abraham, so is this hard? I believe we're not alone, Abraham said reassuringly, looking out the window to the slight rising of light on the horizon. I mean, if we're all there is, it would seem, I don't know, you'd really be telling me you're an alien. There are things out there you can't imagine. And my world and yours are going to come together for the better of both our species, Abraham. My home is hundreds of light years from here, a place, a planet, as you say, called heaven. So why are you here? If it's for our worlds to come together, why are you on this cruise ship? Shouldn't you be doing your thing at the White House, United Nations, or someplace like that? Can I tell you a story, she asked, again laying her hand on his forearm. Abraham hated feeling nervous, but he was. Worse than that, he was scared. Finally, he nodded. There will be a man, the first of your species, who will travel alone past your solar system and into deep space. People from my world will come across him and transport him. A person from another world, and I arrange for her to eat pizza. Well done, Abraham. Ah, uh, you're making a joke. You must be feeling better. 
Abraham nodded, but his curiosity was peaking to new heights. Why are you here with me? Tell me. Eventually, we accompany him back to this planet, Earth as you call it, and our worlds come together. Wars and discontent disappear once humans realize they're not alone in the universe. We teach you how to become one as a species, and what we learn from you is immeasurable. What is that? Diversity and emotion. Our people all look alike. We all shine with this glowing skin, and we had long since become stagnant. From you, we embraced emotion and affection, and we were thrilled at how your species had so many different looks and colors. It's unique in the universe, I assure you. Maybe, but it can cause problems, Abraham said downbeat. Our world is darker than yours, so we evolved into being our own light. Your world has such wonderful natural resources and that beautiful sun. Ours has beauty too, but a kind that would be impossible to explain to you. When does my world come together? In about 60 of your years, Abraham, the chosen one must grow and learn to teach. His world will be your world's destiny. His word will be your world's destiny. Oh, great. You had me all the way, Abraham said, getting up. What on earth do I have to do with your wild story? Should you choose to jump off this ship, none of what I told you will happen, she said. Nonsense. You said yourself. The man hasn't been born yet. What the hell are you telling me? Is this some joke and you'll tell me I'm destined to become some famous writer the world cares about? I don't believe it. You must believe it, Abraham. You need to write. When this man returns with us, your name becomes a household word on two different planets. So you came here to tell me this? I'm an earth specialist in my world, Abraham. We have long since mastered time travel and other modes of movement. You can hardly imagine the possibilities. I volunteered to get this assignment after learning about your novel. You read my novel? The one that's yet unfinished? The woman didn't answer. Instead, looking at Abraham with pale white glowing eyes, turning blue, she took his hand. In Abraham's cabin, she kissed his mouth. It was volcanic, two souls from two different worlds and two different times. He had no idea how long it went on before he collapsed into a deep, contented slumber. Abraham sat up in bed, looking around. Getting dressed, he went onto the decks to try and find her. How was it possible? Was she even a woman as he knew one? He spent the night wandering, looking at the stars, thinking of the story she told him and trying not to cry. Her staying here may alter some other incremental step that would throw off the destiny of these two worlds. Inside his cabin, Abraham broke down and wept. The past 24 hours had turned his world upside down, and he had no clue where he was going. Once he managed to dry his eyes, though, he pulled out his laptop. Abraham wrote the last sentence to finish his novel. His cloth cap rode serenely on the swells. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. I try to offer everyone a variety of fictional stories and different things and poetry and maybe something that touches your heart a little bit at times. So my parting song for this week is titled When a Man's in Love by the Chieftains in the Boiling the Breakfast Early album. Until next time, slauncha. When a man's in love, he feels no cold as I not long ago. As a hero bold to see my girl, I ploughed through frost and snow. And the moon, she gently shed her light along my dreary way. Until at length I came to the spot where all my treasure lay. I knocked on my love's window, saying, My dear, are you within? 
And softly she undid the latch, so slyly I stepped in. Her hand was soft and her breath was sweet, and her tongue it did gently glide. I stole a kiss, it was no miss, and I asked her to be my bride. Oh, take me to your chamber, love, oh, take me to your bed. Oh, take me to your chamber, love, to rest my weary head. But to take you to my chamber, love, my parents would never agree. So sit you down there by under fire, and I'll sit close by thee. Oh, many's the time through frost and snow I've come to visit you. Whether tossed about by cold wintry winds or wet by the morning dew. But tonight our courtship's at a close between you, love, and me. So fare you well, my own favourite girl, a long farewell to thee. Yes, many's the time I've courted you against your parents' will. But you never said you'd be my bride, so now my girl sits still. For tonight I am going to cross the sea to far off Columbia's shore and you will never ever see your youthful lover more. Oh, are you going to leave me now? Oh, pray, what can I do? I will break through every bond of home and come along with you. I know my parents won't forget, but surely they'll forgive. So from the hour I am resolved, along with you I will live. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll return again for another episode of Krona Beha Stories of Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Krona Beha Stories of Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal and help when you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a shot of cake, I want to continue to delight you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. And may the roof overhead be well thatched, and those inside be well matched. Shlong which means goodbye for now in Irish. <laughs>